excited for our conversation tonight. So let me just introduce myself and introduce our guests that we have here tonight. So my name is Erica Jordan Thomas. I am CEO and founder of EJT Consulting LLC, as well as Get Launch Consulting, which is a program that helps educators launch their own consulting business. And tonight we have with us Miss mm-hmm. Sable, who was in cycle five of Get Launch Consulting, and she has her own consulting business, which we're going to learn more about this evening. And so welcome Sable in the chat. Show her some love. So Sable, share with us your education movie trailer. Just kind of briefly walk us through your path and career in education. Yeah. So the, the funny thing is, is that I was never supposed to be an educator. Ever since I was five, I wanted to be a doctor. And part of the reason that I wanted to be a doctor was because I got a paper cut and I was crying because it hurt. And of course, I got the paper cut because I was such a nerd, constantly reading books and like just couldn't wait to turn the page. And my mom told me like, oh, don't worry, your body will heal itself. And I was just like, what's that? And then it turned out to actually heal itself. And so from Mm -hmm. that moment forward, I I wanted to be a doctor because I was fascinated by the science of it and I wanted to help people. And Mm -hmm. that was my plan up until freshman fall of (laughs) college, (laughs) um, where I took a Black history course that just completely changed the way that I saw the world and myself in the world and my place in it and the amount of space that I thought I was allowed to take in it. And I just was marveled by how empowered I felt, but I also felt a deep-seated rage that I had to go through so many elite barriers to access it. And so that totally changed my life. And I decided to go into education because I wanted other people who look like me to know where they're from. And I thought that education was the best way to go about it. And so that is kind of what propelled me into ed and totally changed my life. And as I entered education and I taught in different content areas, I taught, I my heart was with history, but because I was so aware of how much I did not know about how to teach I wanted to go where people were willing to teach me. And so I had a fellowship and I was, I asked for seven, I asked for um, middle school girls and I got placed with first grade boys. (laughs) (laughs) That is such an education story. It really is. And I was confused by it, but I actually ended up fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was astonishing just not only like the innocence of children, but the brilliance. And then just seeing you when they're that young, the rigid gender roles that really mm. put people in boxes and like kind of hold us, prevent us from expressing our truest selves aren't set in place. And so it was just so, it was so beautiful. But eventually I just kept moving through different roles in different schools for two reasons. The, the first reason was, you know, I went into education to undo racism and I chose these different institutions to be a part of because I thought that their approach was a part of that. You know, I thought that their approach, you know, like black kids need to know how to read. You're telling me you can teach a kid how to read. I'm with you. Mm -hmm. But then 
And then on the flip side, Black kids need to be treated with respect. You're telling me you treat Black kids with respect? I'm with you. But then in those experiences, I found like the the underbelly of racism and white supremacy in the expectations we have for kids and the way we treated kids. And I found that every time I pushed back against it and every time I tried to speak to it, it changed the climate for me and my quality of life. And it was difficult to sustain that kind of change in the kinds of roles that I was in. And so that eventually propelled me to, I mean, I was in school leadership, but then I also shifted out just out of the school and out of the classroom because mm-hmm. I thought to myself, okay, the, the way that I can help people, the way I can make a difference in education is by helping others see better and do better. Because while I was able to get my classroom to a certain point, I felt kind of helpless as to what was going on with other classrooms. And I was just like, like carting off the kids to other places and just being like, sorry, good luck in dealing with low expectations or unfair standards, mm. you know? And so that propelled me to into coaching, which I realized it, you know, is such an empowering experience to do something really well that you had no idea was a skill of yours. And that's what coaching teachers was for me. And then eventually I transitioned into coaching principals and also district leaders and helping them work through improvement projects. And so again, inspired by the work, surprised to be very good at it, which I'm, we could talk about later as to why I'm so surprised that I'm good at things. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm, let me make a note. <clears throat> yeah, um, so, you know, I did that I did that work coaching principals and district leaders and leading continuous improvement projects. And I was really good at it. And I also felt that I was, there was like a cap as to how much I could accomplish because of the leadership within the organization that I was with was terrified of talking about race, which is astonishing. Like I was supporting transfer high schools in New York City. And for people who don't know, transfer schools are where kids who are over age and undercredited end up, which is like code for Black kids, brown kids, queer kids, poor kids. The ones that everyone thinks that they're unteachable, they're pushed out to these schools to protect the numbers of other schools, right? Those are the schools that we're in. And we're terrified to talk about race mm. and, and not like in a, let's have a, a DEI conversation about race, but in a, how is, how is our expectations of students impacting the instructional decisions that we're making and how can we shift towards using ev- concrete evidence to determine what our kids can and can't do. And so in one of the scariest moves I made in my entire life, I chose to leave that job without something else lined up, which was against literally everything I had ever learned in my life ever. You know, I learned like get a good job with benefits and be grateful for it. It was the best money I'd made in my entire life, Erica. When I got there, I was able to negotiate a $10,000 raise and I still left. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. I was like, my soul can't do this. But in addition to like the climate 
part of what started to like drop the seeds of why I left was I stumbled across some documentation that like alluded to the daily rate for the work that um, they contracted for. And I was just like, oh my God, y'all are making my salary in like X amount of days <laughs> of my working. And so that just kind of just kind of planted the seed, right? I was like, ooh, education, nonprofits, we're still good and stuff, but it's a business. That was the first time I really paid attention to it being a business. Right. And so mm-hmm. after that, I thought I was going to find a job in three months. I was like, you know, I was listening to my podcast, reading my books. So I was like, yes, I'm going to own my words and ask for what I deserve and apply for things that I know I can do, even if I don't fit every single thing on the qualification list. And I got so many no's or so many, mm-hmm. oh, we think you're great, but you don't have fill-in-the-blank experience. Mm-hmm. And so that, to be totally honest, I I tried to keep my spirits up, but eventually that really, like, I was depressed. I didn't know what to do. I, I mean, except for keep trying. Mm-hmm. And then something in me decided to look at the LinkedIn profiles of the people leading all of these organizations. And I kind of had an aha moment that no one was currently qualified for the job they were in. Like none of their previous jobs would suggest, if you look at the job description of what they currently had, their previous Mm. jobs did not on paper prepare them for the jobs they were currently in, which was fascinating to me because I was being told over and over again, oh, we're excited about you, but you just... You just don't have that kind of experience or, oh, we're great. Why don't you apply to this kind of role instead? And so I was like, okay, that's interesting. Y'all gave yourself promotions through (laughs) connections or starting your own companies. I was like, noted. I wasn't ready yet, but I was still just like noted. So then I started taking the nose and started taking them instead of just being like, okay, thanks, maybe we'll connect in the future. And when they were like, oh, we're, we don't think this role is right for you, but we're excited about you. I would reply and be like, oh, well, why don't we collaborate on something else? Mm. And that started turning into consulting opportunities. Next thing I knew, I was flying around the country, delivering professional development, again, earning more money than I ever had earned in my entire life. And I was like, I would have been happy staying there still mm. freelance consulting, not starting my own company. I would have started my company for tax write-off, not to like actually mm-hmm. do my own thing. But then I had another, that other aha moment of where I was, I, I was making the best money I was making in my life. And for, for example, for one company, I was being asked to facilitate for PD. I think I was like making five to $700 a day best money I ever could have dreamed of. But then I found out they make 4000 a day <laughs> for the service that I was delivering. And not only that, I had so many ideas on how to improve it. Mm. And not only that, I was allowed to improve the ideas, but without necessarily getting compensated. And not only that, I realized the services that were being provided wasn't actually meeting the needs of 
the schools and districts that I was supporting. And so all of that was really just the universe trying to truly nudge me, nudge me, kick me (laughs) into the right direction until I realized I'm not, I'm never going to get permission from anyone. No one is ever going to co-sign on these ideas that I have. And I, I just need to do it. I just need to do it. I don't know if I can curse. I just need to do it. Of course you can't curse. Oh my God. Yes. I just need to fucking do it. So, um, I was terrified, but I eventually, so then I decided, all right, I'm going to do my own business. Why I, I was planning my Isaac strategy terrified and I thought walking around that everyone would know of my secret plans and <laughs> that I would be found out and <laughs> that the whole world would come crashing down because I chose to start a business. But of course it didn't. Mm-hmm. But I filed an LLC and then I was really excited and then I panicked and became terrified and then didn't tell anyone or anything that I created an LLC until the following spring. And so it's just, it's, it's been such an interesting journey because Mm -hmm. I have no doubt that I am exactly where I need to be. And I am in, in, in alignment with my values and my purpose for this world. And I believe that now I'm in I'm actually in the best position I can be to create access for Black children. And that has always been my motivation. And I feel like by starting my own business, I have removed all the barriers that have been in the way for me to, to do that. And so that's, that's how mm. I got here. I mean, here to this moment was, of course, with your fabulous coaching and support. <laughs> But yeah, that, that's what it feels like. It's scary, but it, it is so empowering and it's necessary work. And I, th- this is, this is, it got to the point, I, I know like sometimes people are wondering if they can or they should start a business and part of it because of what feels safe or like what is a risk, right? But right. if I got honest and real with myself, the risk was continuing to look for employment with other jobs because the amount of time in which I could tolerate being there had half-lives. So like every single time I got to a new place before it was two years and it was one year, then it was six months, it was three months. And now I'm over a place where I'm interviewing for them. This is outrageous. (laughs) I couldn't support myself or family this way. So it's just like, I'm I'm actually unemployable, and that's why I have to. <laughs> oh, that's a T-shirt. I'm unemployable. Yes, girl. Oh, that's a T-shirt. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So say, but oh my god. Okay. So, oh, you said so much good stuff. You said so much good stuff, and <laughs> you are getting love in the chat of just affirmation of things that you said that are resonating with people. So one thing that stuck out to me is because you mentioned in your story. So when you joined the program, you already had your business, which I think it's important to kind of talk about that experience. And one thing that you were kind of indirectly saying was that there's a difference in your business of being an independent contractor versus being CEO of your business. Yeah. And so I heard you name this experience of if I had to name like attributes of an independent contractor, mm-hmm. as an independent contractor, you are 
consulting or contracted with an organization, you are not their employee. So you can Mm -hmm. still, you know, have an LLC, you can still have your own business, but Mm -hmm. the difference in the approach and mindset versus being an independent contractor versus a CEO is the strategy, is the focus, is the mindset behind your, your business. So independent contractors probably say yes to a lot of things. And independent contractors may or may not really be thinking about some of the business strategy of intellectual property of my target mm-hmm. client of, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of a lot of the things that you've thought through in your business. So I just want to name that difference for people of how mm-hmm. important it is for you to think through really the business strategy part of, mm-hmm. of putting on the CEO hat, which you've done in your business. So... One thing that you said, there's a couple of things that you said that I want to dig into. And the first piece that you said was being an entrepreneur, being, you know, the CEO of your business allowed you to remove some of the barriers that had been there previ- previously for you in trying to do this work. So just talk a little bit about what those barriers were. How did you, how did they show up for you? What, you know, how did you experience barriers? Yeah, I think the barriers existed in the form of like permission. So like permission to say something, permission to do something, permission to change the scope of work, permission to be honest, like have radical, courageous honesty with the people I'm working with regarding the, the true pros and cons and like the impact of the decisions they can make. And so I think that is the biggest shift. And, you know, and it looked like, you know, when I was a teacher needing to ask my principal if I could send things out to families or if I can have this event to when I was coaching teachers, like having permission to have a PD of a certain kind or when I was like coaching principals and system leaders in this organization, permission to integrate race into a framework. And so Mm. I don't want to ask for permission for anything that is necessary for Black children to have access. And at the end of the day, all the things that I needed to ask for permission for made me feel as if I was being complicit in a system creating inequitable Mm. outcomes for Black children. You know, I've wondered, like, I've questioned the extent to which that I was, you know, a part of the problem or a part of the solution. And I, I found that I felt I most didn't like the answer to that question whenever I needed to ask for permission. Mm. And so the, that, those are the kinds of barriers. And I, you know, I also think the last thing that I have permission to do is to say no as a, a transitioning from an employee and transitioning from an independent contractor to a CEO is permission to say, no, I'm not going to do that because that's not in alignment with my vision. That will not bring access to Black children. And it's my company because I'm a boss bitch. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, that, those are the things. Yeah. Oh, the permission to say no. Mm-hmm. Oh, Sable, you about to have a whole line of t-shirts by the end of this IG because <laughs> that's a t-shirt too. The permission to say no. 
Yes. Mm. <laughs> so one of the things that you mentioned is, and this is the technical piece that you mentioned, but I think it would be helpful for those who are listening. You said you filed your LLC. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about that process for you. Yes. So I actually, in the midst of this whole journey I described, I had actually moved from New York to California. And so when I was in New York and when I started to take transform the nose into, oh, let's collaborate, I did... Um, I did TFA. I had the AmeriCorps. You've heard the story of people two, three years out are slammed with a tax bill. That happened Mm -hmm. to me. I was afraid of that happening again. And so I was like, let me do an LLC to at least protect me from taxes. Not not to actually... I was playing small. I think the seed to have my business was there, but I was afraid of it. And so I was like, I'm going to file... I was playing small and I was scared of that, but what I was more scared of was the IRS. And so I was like, let me get this done. So, but then, and I just did it on some website, like Legal Zoom. But then I moved to California, right? And then I was like, I'm going to do this business right. Like, I had several months had passed, mindset should have been worked through, and I was like, I'm going to do a business. And so then I was like, because I had moved to another state and I needed to close this LLC and I had also gotten married. And so I knew that they were like legal. I was just scared. And so I was like, I need to find a lawyer to help me do this. And I know it's going to cost money, but I'm an expert at instruction in equity. I want people to pay me for that. Lawyers are experts at lawyering. (laughs) Find a lawyer. And, um, it was um, kind of hard to find a lawyer because when I first started um, my business, I decided that my business would be a vehicle to create Black wealth for me and the people I interact with, which meant that I was looking for, I wanted to find whenever possible other Black women to hire because, you know, women and especially Black women, the way we spend our money goes back to the community and our families like tenfold. And so that I made that decision. And so it, it was kind of, I had to, I just spent many hours like searching online. I think I forgot what website I went on, but I would just, I was, I had to find, well, I first had to make sure the lawyer knew what they were doing. So I used to find someone with experience in small businesses that was a black woman in California. <laughs> so that always kind of narrows down the list, but I eventually found her, had a consultation and then and then she did it for me. And so that that was exciting and scary but so very necessary. Mm. So I love I love that story of you filing your LLC because you give two examples of how you could go about doing it. So you give the example of you can file online through a third party website. And so two examples of those are LegalZoom or Inkfile. Mm-hmm. And then you also mm-hmm. named the example of you could go through a small business attorney. And so I feel like that process often for a lot of people is what, you know, they they what holds them back from going for it is just some of the the business aspects that yes. feel very overwhelming when you don't have the information or 
of, of what to do, how to do, what questions to ask. And LLCs, I feel like, is one of those things. And so I, I feel like our audience would really appreciate you sharing your story in that way. Brie, that's I was going to say, you know, it's also, yeah, I was going to say, it, I like that you highlight that because, you know, just do whatever you're ready for. Take the shortest path of resistance and then just mm-hmm. fucking do it. And then just give yourself momentum. And that looked like having this come, starting with this one thing. And then eventually I pivoted to something else. I ultimately, I always knew the destination would be, you know, to hire a lawyer for me because I'm, you know, history brought me into education. And so I'm hyper aware of the history of. Black people in this country and the ways that the law has been used to like steal our intellectual property and our wealth. Mm. And so I Mm. knew I wanted a lawyer up in that, Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I wasn't ready for it yet. So I just did what I had to do to get it done first. And then when I was ready, I was able to lawyer up. I love that. I love that. So you said early on in our conversation and you, you've, it's interesting because there seems to be a theme in your story of the mindset work that you've done. So mm-hmm. I've heard, heard two examples of mindsets that it sounds like you have worked through in your entrepreneurial journey. The first one you named early on in our conversation of being surprised when you learn you're good at things. And then mm-hmm. the second piece mindset that I heard you name or uh, evidence of another mindset is this reoccurring theme in your story of how each time that you would take a, a step forward or do something in your business, it would be like this, like, oh my God, like freak out moment or like overwhelmed feeling. And mm-hmm. so I would just love for you to talk about the mindset work be- that you you um, have done, been doing, continue to do in your business, because that's been a theme that's been coming up and across all of our conversations this whole week is the mindset work you have to do as an entrepreneur. So yes. if you had to name like the top two to three mindsets that mm-hmm. you've had to, to work through, what would you name them as? And what has that work look like? You know, I I think at the root of all of it is two things. It's around like scarcity and enoughness. And so scarcity. And, you know, it's interesting the way you frame your question because I see how I've been working on mindset issues throughout this journey. You know, I have read self-help books. I'm obsessed with Brene Brown. I regularly engage in therapy. And it honestly wasn't until I started your program and was working through the pre-work of it that I, that it occurred to me that mindset issues were showing up in my business. That was I was completely shocked by that. But I would say that scarcity and enoughness have everything to do with it. So scarcity was just this like, it's just this idea of like, you know, I have to act as if that there aren't enough resources. And so one being money. And so that means that I have to play it safe. And I have to, and anything that jeopardizes me being safe or having that security is off limits. Mm-hmm. And but the issue with that is this that scarcity mindset would clash with 
my capacity to stay in integrity with my values. So, for example, I entered education to disrupt racist outcomes and create access for Black children. And when I would see things in conflict with that, I had I, I wanted to speak up. I wanted to do something about it. And I, I, you know, once you see things, you just can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. And so had to sit with that discomfort and then decide which is wild when you think about why I came into education that I was even contemplating choosing to do something. And it's because it hit up against my scarcity bullshit. Mm. Like my belief that if I say something, if I do something, you know, if I call in this person in leadership, if I call in this policy that is beloved, that my job is at risk, that my well-being is at risk. And it that that's how I feel like scarcity has the potential to compromise integrity because it's like you do what you need to do, what you think you need to do in order to survive. But the problem with that thinking is one, part of that, part of the fear is rooted in not trusting my capacity to make money and take care of myself. Mm. And if I have faith mm. in that, then I know, girl, you could say whatever the hell you want. <laughs> Do whatever you want. Send that email. Call that person in. The world will not crumble, you know? And if people act accordingly, take that information and do what you need to do to construct the environment that will allow you to do, to do what you need to do. And so that is how scarcity has shown up in my career. And I, I think one way scarcity shows up with my business is twofold, is with money and it's with owning my ideal client. Okay. So, but, and this is where I feel like Scarcity intersects with capitalism and white supremacy that I'm trying to unlearn, okay? <laughs> so when it comes to money, I, I, so Erica, I realize it is actually painful for me to spend money, no matter what it is. Like, I feel pain. I, and I only just realized this very, very recently, but it's basically been true of my entire adult life. Mm-hmm. Whenever I spend money, it, it's like, oh, oh, like, do I really need, need this? You know, like squashing my needs, squashing my desires because there isn't enough money. And so mm-hmm. you can only spend money on the things you really, really need. And what do you really, really need? And what you want is not important. But what I need as a business owner, what I need as a CEO is to have the time to do things that are actually in my zone of genius. What I don't need as a CEO is to learn tax law so I don't have to pay someone to do my taxes. Mm -hmm. I don't need to do that shit. I hate it. (laughs) I dread it. I feel like having a tantrum when I think about taxes. Why would I want to learn to do that instead of paying someone who loves that shit to do Mm -hmm. it. So that's how I'm like really still working through those decisions of like recognizing that my time and the creating the conditions that allow me to thrive is worth the money. And that is outside of what I've conditioned, what I've been conditioned to understand is a worthwhile expense. 
you know, outside of like the like utilities and rent and food on sale, <laughs> like you're not supposed to spend money on other things. Yeah. And so that's the first way scarcity shows up. And I would say the second way scarcity shows up is with owning my ideal client. And so I love working with Black women. I kind of think we're it. I have this theory. Because we are. I'm biased. I, you know, I'm not even going to say I'm biased. I have evidence and I have facts. Okay. And I'm not going to say I'm biased because you don't see white men saying that they're biased when they're spending 98% of all venture capital funding on other men. Okay. So I'm not biased. I'm speaking on truth and facts. Okay, black women wear magic. And I believe black women have the capacity to change education. And instead of, you know, I saw something that was like, you know, everyone's thanking black women because, you know, we save democracy and da 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 da. And I saw something online that was like, stop thanking us and move over and give us a seat at the damn table. Like, (laughs) just Mm -hmm. get get out the way. That's how Mm -hmm. you can think. And I, who I really, I really want to work with black women leading schools and systems. Mm -hmm. And I, not only do I think we're magic, but also when I was just trying to do some research into like the different kinds of, what do you call it? School systems that I wanted to support. I looked at all the school systems just for California, for example, that had black women in leadership. And all of those school systems were more diverse. Like the leadership was more diverse. They had more clearly explicit and accountable programs for how to get the needs, not only of Black students met, but English language learners, of foster youth, of like going down the line. Like, and they're getting results. And Mm -hmm. I just didn't see that in other school systems in the same way. And so the way scarcity shows up is thinking like, oh, Sable, like, well, if you make your business about that, are you going to make money? Are you going to like scare people away? Are you going to be, are there enough people out there who, who would want that? And I, that's something that I'm like, I know those things are lies and in my brain and in my, in my heart, it's still, I'm still trying to unlearn that. But I also know if I'm honest with myself, my soul will die if I don't own that. Like if I actually get real with myself around who do, if I, who do I love working with, you know, and, and the why, and just based off of my skills and stuff. So I feel like that's how scarcity shows up. Scarcity prevents you from owning your dream. Scarcity prevents you from owning the full power of the people whose lives you can impact. And Mm -hmm. I just feel like that's something I, it would be naive to say that I wouldn't always be working on that or maybe it's not, but I know I'm working on it now. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is, oh, I want to dial it back. So the scarcity around owning your dream and your ideal client, that ties into white supremacy because you know, like we're supposed to believe that serving us in ourselves, that we, we can't make money, we can't be well, but that, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Like to a point, Madam CJ Walker, millionaire, 
serving mm-hmm. black women, hiring black women, meeting the needs of black women when no other businesses were doing it in that way. And mm-hmm. so I, which is part of why history and right, which brought me into this in the first place, like knowing I, it's just like really knowing the truth and knowing the facts around what is possible makes all of a sudden owning your dream less scary, which is right now, I, I know I'm coming off hot with this, but I, which I was going to say it's because I'm reading a book, but I'm always like this, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> <Own it. laughs> but I, I am reading Black Fortunes right now. And that book mm-hmm. is, it is, I'm, I'm done. I'm undone. Um, it's it called is, Black Fortunes. Yes. Black fortune. Yes. It's just, it's so powerful because there's so many stories. Oh, the book is Black Fortune, the story of the first six African-Americans who survived slavery and became millionaires. You know, they would have us thinking that we don't know how to hold on to a dime. And all of the... Come on. Speak. Come on. Bring it. This is a kind of a tangent, but I do need to say it. Like, all of the, right, everyone's talking about the keys of um, financial freedom for Black people is financial literacy. That is bullshit. Mm. We need to stop taking Black people's money. We need to allow them to have opportunity. Like, what we see over and over again is Black people creating and generating wealth, and then with systemic and random state-sanctioned white violence, it's taken away. And so I don't, it really, it feels deeply racist to me to say that poverty amongst Black people exists because we don't know how to count our coins. That is like the greatest, that is the greatest line of BS in the whole world. And I say that knowing that, like, I have all my money stuff that I need to work through and like, sure, I can budget and do all this other stuff. But what if you just, like, what if, we just stop taking black people's money and allow them to grow it and Girl, pass it yes. But that, that was just a tangent that needed Ooh. to be said. Financial literacy is not the key to our freedom. But you just know what that, that makes me, that it's reminds helpful, me of. It's not um, okay. So it, oh, I just love this point so much because, mm-hmm. you know, for um, people who come from marginalized communities, i.e. both you and I as black women, and other identities that have been historically oppressed. There's Mm -hmm. so much of our mind trash that we have, that's internalized Mm -hmm. oppression of because we live in a racist Mm -hmm. society, because we live in a country Mm -hmm. that was built, that was not built for us, that white supremacy is the air that we are constantly breathing in, that there is so much of the Mm -hmm. mind trash we had to deal, we have to deal with as entrepreneurs that mm-hmm. is a result of internalized oppression, the ways in which we've unconsciously yes. inhaled the messages that society reflects back to us of the fact that we don't belong. So that, that just makes me yes. think of, you know, my own mindset work. We all have mind yes. trash and mind work that we have to do. And one of the pieces for me early on in my journey was mm-hmm. I felt really uncomfortable calling myself an entrepreneur. I felt really uncomfortable. And I remember I was in an executive coaching session through my mm-hmm. program and having a conversation Mm -hmm. with my executive coach about it. And I told her, I was like, 
I just don't see anybody who looks like me. And she was like, Erica, have you looked? And I was like, hmm. She was like, because mm-hmm. Black entrepreneurs exist. Mm-hmm. Have you looked? Like, and it was that moment that of a yes. click of like the yes. forces of white supremacy yes. will actually bury the the visibility of Black entrepreneurs. And so it's our yes. responsibility to look because Black entrepreneurs are least likely yes. to get capital. We're least likely to get backing and support. Each the other. level yes. of, of hoops that we have to jump yes. through in order to, to get visible, in order yes. to have a clear marketing strategy. And then I had this realization that entrepreneurship mm-hmm. in this this you know I'm going to I want I'm going to get this book Black Fortunes I love this so much because it reminds me of the 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 lesson that I've learned Ooh. in just these yes. past couple of years in my business of entrepreneurship has been a strategy in our community for survival for centuries like we have from the jump like that is a part of our, our well, lineage. That is in our bloodline is entrepreneurship mm-hmm. because it's been a strategy of survival because mm-hmm. we have been pushed out of mm-hmm. the workforce that we've had no other choice but to build mm-hmm. businesses. And we may not have used the language yes. of entrepreneurship. We may not have yes. used the language of yes. I'm starting a business. It might've been like, mm-hmm. let me start selling this thing or let me start doing hair or let me make this, this thing I'm really good at yeah. Maybe not have used the word monetize. You might have used the word hustling or like I need to mm-hmm. turn a nickel into five dollars. So mm-hmm. uh, there's so much of the mindset work that goes back to identity. So tell yeah. us more about your business. You started talking about your target client, but what's the problem your business is solving? Yes. So schools and school systems invest so much money in professional development and curriculum training. And yet teachers are still choosing to remain. Oh, it looks like we lost her, but hopefully she'll be coming back here in a second. If you all have any last questions for Sable or I, go ahead and just drop those into the chat and we'll get those answered for you here in the next few moments before we wrap up. And so um, hopefully Sable will be joining us back here in a moment, but yeah, this is a good conversation. Oh, this is so good. Sable's talking so much about this mindset work. So um, question, you mentioned the book, The Big Leap. Who's the author? The author is Gay Hendricks. So I'll drop that into the chat. On the cover is a fish in a bowl. So so you just want to make sure you get the one with the fish in a bowl. Gay Hendricks. Yep. And that book is absolutely amazing and has been a huge part in my mindset journey. Perfect. All right. Sable's back. So we're going to bring her back in. All right. Welcome back, friend. Yes. Sorry about that. You're fine. You're fine. So tell us about your business. Um, The problem you are in the middle of telling us the problem your book is solving. Yes. Okay. You also said the problem my book is solving, which I I mean, (laughs) is manifesting (laughs) from the universe. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that too. <laughs> yeah, just, while, while you were coming back in, we were just talking about books because someone had a good question in the chat. So yeah, tell us tell us about the problem, your business, and then your book is also going to be solved. Yes, yes. <laughs> Forthcoming in two to three years, maybe less. <laughs> Come on. Okay. okay. So um, what was I saying? 
So basically, I help school and system leaders desystematize unconscious bias in instructional decision making and help them figure out how to design systems that cultivate high quality instructional practices. Because the issue is, as we were talking about, white supremacy is the air of this country, which means it's in the air of our teacher education. It's in the air of our professional development. It's in the air of our expectations for what kids are even capable of. And the reality is because education loves to segregate lots of things, including in the conversation around instruction and equity, there is nothing about the way we do instruction and equity that intersects. Mm -hmm. And so the way we prepare teachers to teach and um, the way we make decisions in education it, it doesn't disrupt unconscious bias. It doesn't discuss, disrupt racism. And so I help school and system leaders design systems that do that. I help them adopt a coaching, uh, a coaching model and more so an, an instructional leadership framework that actively disrupts that. Because, I, I mean, honestly, I, I see so many principals and district leaders that are frustrated that, you know, we spent all this money on the tier one curriculum. We're doing what Everport said, where we paid for this training, like they had their boot camp, and teachers are still choosing to not put things in front of kids. And the reality is because we never set the thing. Mm. We never named the thing and 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 in the in a in a useful concrete way. Not in a way that shuts things down, but in a way that holds people accountable to impact, not intent. Mm-hmm. I love, something I love to say is like, I'm actually not here to change hearts and minds. Okay. You're going to choose to show up to disrupt racism or not. If you have chosen not to, that is on you, boo. There's nothing I can say or do that can convince you to do that. And I'm not going to waste my time with that. What I can do, though, is hold you accountable to your impact. What Mm. decisions led to this outcome for Black kids? What policies led to this outcome for Black kids? I can work with you on those. But I I feel as if I think DEI work is so important. And I think the way it's manifesting in, in education is really it's putting all of this emotional labor on Black and brown people that actually excuses it lets a lot of people off the hook for mm-hmm. do, taking the action that actually leads to outcomes. And so that's what I help school and system leaders do. That can look like, yeah, that's what I help them do. And part of the stage of my business that I'm in is figuring out like the framework that I can clearly communicate that. And also I find myself Part of another reason why, because I remember when I was considering your program, I was like, I could spend this money, scarcity stuff. I was like, I could not spend this money and figure it out in like 12 to 18 months, or I could spend this money and figure it out in six weeks. And then I thought to myself, okay, what would I gain and lose by waiting this long or by figuring this stuff out now? Mm-hmm. And the difference is pales into comparison of <laughs> what you were offering. So I was like, I got to do this. I forgot where I was going with that thought. 
Hmm. It, that's what happens when you speak in paragraph when I so often do. <laughs> <laughs> Say, but listen, we, uh, uh, IG needs a virtual offering plate because the way you've been preaching tonight, <laughs> we need to pass the plate, okay, or the cash out or something because you've been in here preaching. So my last question, point five question, 1.5 question, because I have a follow-up after this. So that way folks know how to stay in contact with you and leverage you and your, your business. But just tell us about your experience in the program. Like what, what did, what was most impactful for you in leaving after completing the program? Like what mm-hmm. were some of the biggest things that you felt like you were able to accomplish as a result? Yeah. So I think, well, I just remember, so I remember signing up and then I remember getting pre-work and I was like, oh my God, this is the most. And I was <laughs> procrastinating, <laughs> but then I got into it and I was like, oh my God, this is everything. And then I just got so excited for the start of the program. And I, I think my biggest, one of my biggest takeaways is like mindset shit is real. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I need to actively work on or else it will actively work on me and my business. You know, that was one of the first biggest things. And then I would say just being in the program, it felt really, being an entrepreneur is so scary and isolating and lonely. And it felt like this nice little safe container to come to once a week of like, oh, like here here are my people who are kind of going through similar things and figuring out, the things. And it was also nice to just, you know, the the topics that you covered were things that I was struggling with identifying for myself. And like, I had ideas, right? But because of my mindset stuff, I could only go so far without one, removing the mindset and two, having support or working through the mindset, I should say. <laughs> and so it was just really nice to learn from you and your journey and then reflect that on mine and then hear from other people and then have these like really concrete resources that also that honestly that I could trust because you were talking about entrepreneurship and like reclaiming it. And I, some, that reminds me of what I wanted to say. Like, I think what you're doing is so fucking radical because entrepreneurship has been like totally whitewashed and co-opted mm-hmm. and part of the reason why I was so drawn to you is because you are this black woman out here doing the thing like and saying all the things and I was like oh my god like I can I can trust what you have to say like not just because you're a black woman like I I saw your content and like if I vibed with it but it was I think feeling seen in that and just Mm -hmm. like I had explored other entrepreneur type things and I was just like oh this doesn't feel right or this doesn't da, da, da. and it's just like you know like white dudes in the hoodie with like, <laughs> and, like and they're just like yeah just da, 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 da. and I'm like no <laughs> vibe with me okay so I think I part of the value of the program is I've got so many resources but it was like vetted through you. And that's important because like when going through this mindset work and like thinking about visibility and being seen, like I, I'm trying to intentionally create an 
echo chamber of fierce Black women. And so if I'm consuming things created by people who are not that, I, I have the personal rule that it needs to be recommended by at least three Black women. Then I'll consider it. <laughs> I so, love you so much. I that, love you so that, much. That is like, you cannot enter my mind, my consciousness, or my screen unless you have been vetted by three Black women. And so... That because of the mind trash and it's yeah. that makes all this other stuff triggering. And it's yeah. just like if I'm working on scarcity and enoughness, like I can like see so much of like the what's out there in like the white, the mainstream entrepreneur space is like, you know, th- there's like a lot of bootstrapping stuff and like that triggers that enough. Like, well, if you're not getting these results, it's because you're not enough. It's like, no, boo, you're getting those results because you asked for a $10 million loan from your grandparents and you got a $5 million loan <laughs> and now you're complaining about it. So yeah, yeah. I feel like it, it's just like the value is unending. We, I could have talked for an hour about the things I got from your course. And I've like since... I'm clearly a stan because I've since <laughs> and me too. What I know. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, I love you so much. Tell folks how they can get in contact with you, how they can connect, and or if there's anything coming up that you want folks to know about. Ooh, I love that question. So yes, you can stay in touch with me by following me on Instagram and subscribing to my mailing list. Uh, the link is in my bio. And I heard through the grapevine that I'm starting a podcast in 2021. (laughs) (laughs) So that's coming to a headphone near you. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love you so much. Y'all go and follow Sable at Equitable Outcomes LLC on IG. Follow her, follow her, follow her. As you can tell, she... It's so dope, y'all. And every time, I mean, this this is true tonight and it's been true this entire week. I, I Clearly, I'm a little dramatic and externally dramatic with how I feel. But like, I mean, it, it is so much deeper than this conversation right now of like hearing you as a Black woman talk about the barriers you have removed for yourself all in the name of serving Black children. And it's like you betting on yourself and therefore creating freedom and liberation for yourself that is therefore creating freedom and liberation for communities and kids. Like, like there, I get so overwhelmed by that because it's just so powerful. And it all starts with the simple choice of us making a, a choice and out of that's an act of resistance of betting on ourselves. Yes. Like that is actually yes. a revolutionary act. That is an act of resistance of betting on ourselves. And then all the dominoes that happen once we make that one choice. Yes. And it's an ongoing choice. You got to mm-hmm. keep doing it. Mm-hmm. But the first time you bet on yourself, Ooh. like mm-hmm. what comes after that and the it's data powerful. you get back, Mm-hmm. Once you bet on yourself, and here's what's crazy too. Mm-hmm. I was just telling this to, I was connecting with another alum from the program earlier today. And we were talking about this is that like, we have as black women, we as educators, we as people who do right by kids, we have bet on ourselves in mm-hmm. so many different ways mm-hmm. already previously in our career. Now we're betting on ourselves in a way that's directly tied to business revenue 
which yes. is what makes it feel scary when yes. actually it's the same thing. Yeah. Like before you were betting on yourself and maybe mm-hmm. it was just like, uh, my internet in my classroom went out and I still got this lesson that I got to do. So let me just yes. like, boop, 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 mm-hmm. making this thing happen and still mm-hmm. finessing in the sauce. Mm-hmm. It is the same skill set. You are just operating and doing it in your business and the mm-hmm. outcome is business revenue plus impact. Right. Um, and so... And- and Erica, considering all the things that in the world that have happened to Black women historically and today, betting on ourselves is the safest thing to do. I'm going to argue. That, that's just, those are just my thoughts. Girl, let me, how I, let me, this is me throwing money in your offering plate. Oh, oh, oh. oh. Yes. That's t-shirt number three. T-shirt number three, betting on ourselves as Black women is the safest thing we can do right now. Yeah. Oh, girl. Sable, I love you so much. Thank you so much. I'm so honored. Thank you for having me here. This is is so great, friend. I am forever in your corner and forever rooting you on. And I'm just grateful you took the time for us to have a conversation tonight. Yes. Thank you so much. I know it's late all over, all the way on the East Coast for you. (laughs) Enjoy your Friday, girl. Get some rest. All right, you too. I'll talk to you soon. (laughs) Okay, bye. All right, bye.